0: Welcome to an episode of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Visions Media. I am your host, Donna Paris, coming to you from Toronto. In the spirit of reconciliation with Indigenous Peoples in Canada, I, Donna Paris, solemnly pledge to learn more about Indigenous Peoples and issues to not perpetuate stereotypes in my conversations or observations, to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's 94 Calls to Action, to read the 231 Calls for Justice in the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and to actively encourage ongoing support of National Indigenous Peoples' Day every June 21st and National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th. And you can find this pledge at Indigenous Corporate Training Inc. at www.ictinc.ca. I give gratitude and thanks. I am here today with Valerie Jerome. Valerie was born in St. Boniface, Manitoba on August 28, 1944. Valerie is a Canadian Olympian, a former teacher, political activist, and a public speaker. Her maternal grandfather, John Armstrong Army Howard, was Canada's first black Olympian and competed in the 1912 Olympic Games in Stockholm. Valerie represented Canada at the 1959 Pan Am Games in Chicago and at the Rome Olympics in 1960. Her last international meet was at the 1966 Commonwealth Games in Kingston, Jamaica. Her brother, Harry Winston Jerome, received the Order of Canada was a Canadian track and field sprinter and physical education teacher. He won a bronze medal at the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo and set a total of seven world records over the course of his career. Valerie helped establish the Harry Jerome commemorative society. Thanks for sitting down with me today, Valerie. I'm really excited about being here with you. Thank you. It's very nice to be with you, Donna. During World War One, your grandfather served as a sapper with the Canadian Railway Troop. Tell us about your grandfather, Army Howard, And his wife, Edith Lipscomb, and how Harry Vincent Jerome Sr. became your grandfather.
1: Well, my grandfather was in England at the end of the war. Many people have told me that both in Canada and in the United States, Black people were the last to be brought home. Now, I don't know whether this is because in Canada they were the last to go, because of course they weren't allowed to even be part of the Canadian Armed Forces. Either way, My grandfather was there after the war and did some competing internationally for the Canadian Armed Forces team. I have a lovely photograph of him about to receive a medal from the King of Montenegro in 1919. He was in Europe and competed a lot, but back in London, or actually in all of Britain, there were race riots breaking out. I'm sure you've already read of that because so many black soldiers from both the US and Canada were there, and of course, English people didn't want their white women to be fooling around, so to speak, with black men. Well, my grandmother was one of those women who was fooling around with a black man, John Armstrong Howard. Edith had grown up in a farming community just outside of London. It seems odd now to imagine them together. I I never did meet my grandfather. He died in 1937 because he was very, very tall and she is very, very short. But anyway, He was eventually shipped home in uh, November of 1919 back to Winnipeg, and lo and behold, in June of 1920, my grandmother arrived. They were not yet married, but anyway, she had in her arms this baby who proved to be my mother in later years. They were married in Winnipeg. Nobody would rent to them. I mean, it's it's bad enough to be Black, but mixed-race couples were and abhorrent. There were laws against it all over the United States. I don't know whether you've seen that fabulous film, Loving. In Canada, people just shunned them. They just thought this was the beginning of the end of this beautiful white race of people. Yeah. And of course, it was browning up the population. So they couldn't get a place to rent in Winnipeg. They went to the town of Saint Rose du Lac. People there met them with stones. So they took their little buckboard, their baby, and all their belongings, and headed north. They settled and farmed close to the Crane River uh, First Nations reservation. The marriage didn't last, but my mother had two sisters born of of Army Howard. That was their father. But when the couple settled, my grandfather, of course, the only place he could get work, really, and this was one of the problems in their marriage, was that he was having to do in Winnipeg to work on the trains. Although he'd been trained as a mechanic in his life, there were not necessarily laws, unwritten laws in place. That's where Army Howard needed to be working. And one of the um, fellow porters, a man who proved to be my father, my father, Harry Vincent Jerome, was a very, very good friend of Army Howard's. He was much younger than Army Howard. But uh, when Army Howard suddenly died in Winnipeg in 1937, my dad began going up to uh, Dauphin, where Edith and her daughters had subsequently moved to, to see how Army's kids were doing, and they weren't doing well. My dad and mom started a relationship and later married. They married in 1940. My brother Harry was born in September of 1940 in Prince Albert, which was one of the stops on my dad's railway run, and they were in fact living in Prince Albert at the time. So that's how um, my dad came into the picture. Sadly, I know almost nothing about my father we spent many many decades trying to get a birth certificate for him so that he could prove to the good old cnr railway that he in fact was old enough to retire but finally he was able to retire because he'd worked for them for 40 years but we never did pin down a place of his birth anyway my dad was a wonderful kind man did he talk about his life no We did know as we were growing up that he was exhausted, that he was up all night because, you know, in this vast country, people need to be put off at every little train stop along the way. And I don't believe they even provided beds for porters. I think they were given a chair. They were expected to be up and people were sick in the night or letting people off or shining shoes, but you were on full duty such that when you came home, the end of your run you went to bed because you would have been up for you know possibly three nights and that's how my dad lived
0: he came home and he would try to get some sleep when your dad was transferred from winnipeg to the west coast things didn't go so well for you and your family can you tell us what your family was met with when you moved into the north vancouver area and what happened
1: the first day of school okay so it was 1951 north vancouver basically being totally white. Most of the people were immigrants who had come from Europe. And many of the families' fathers worked at the Burrard Dry Docks. So I guess they thought when they moved to North Vancouver, because they were on a hill, they were really moving up in the world. Initially, a petition was taken out and taken to city council to prevent our moving into our home at 416 Lyon Place. It turns out all but one family on that street signed the petition.
0: And were you aware of this? As your no, young no, self?
1: no, at my age I knew nothing. I think my parents knew about it, but I knew nothing. And so the first day of school, the day after Labor Day of 1951, we headed out the door. Harry, who was supposed to be going into grade five, Carolyn into grade four. I was going to go into grade two, and my younger brother Barton was going to be heading into grade one. The kids were ready for us. They were sort of the juvenile militia representing their parents failed petition maybe they would get the action I have relived that scene for many many decades it was a heck of a lot of kids maybe one or 200 kids I don't know but they were all along the side of 8th street on the north side of street and we were coming straight across that road from the south side of 8th Street. anyway all the rocks were pelting us hitting us in the head, the back face. We turned, we ran. We didn't have far to run. Our house was right there. And we stayed at home, you know, until my dad came home from his train trip. You know, my mother had absolutely no courage at all to take us back across the street. She had suffered her own very specialized form of racism growing up. And she um, was not a woman full of self-confidence. So we stayed there. And when my dad came home, he took us across the road into this mob of kids at I don't know quarter to nine in the morning before the bell went. Oh God! I'm I, sorry. I get I get tense just even thinking about it. Anyway, my dad proceeded into the building to see the principal, and we were just sort of surrounded by this mob of kids. And the most outstanding thing to me, and I use this example over and over and over again in all of my talks, especially in schools. Our neighbor, the daughter of the one family that did not sign the petition, little redhead and Annabelle McKenzie, just left the mob and came and stood with us. And it's so deeply etched in my mind for all time. And you think, here's a little girl. She's seven years old and she's got far more courage than the grade sevens or the other kids in her school or the hundreds of people whom I've been with over the course of my life who have not stood up, spoken up. You know, articulated what needed to be said, whether it was verbally or through your actions. Is that why you tell children dare to be Annabelle? And Annabelle, I use that. Oh, dare to be an Annabelle. I I tell adults too because let me tell you, sometimes the adults need to be told more. I think kids are more in touch with their emotions than adults who've managed to shove them down. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so my dad came out of the building with Mr. Bolman, who had his megaphone, and he announced that uh, yes, we would be allowed to come to the school, and and the kids better stop all of this uh, behavior. And then I watched my dad walk across the school grounds, back over into our yard. You know, the racism didn't go away because Mr. Bowman had said a few words. Then I got, so I really hated going to school. Although once I was in the classroom, I couldn't have been happier. I loved it, especially my first year there. I came to school late because, number one, I was afraid of the school grounds. Harry and Carol and my older siblings would race off and tie up with their friends. Harry would be out there, you know, hitting a ball or throwing a ball. I hated the cold, slimy, gray oatmeal porridge, which I've never, ever been able to eat. So I would sit there and I guess, you know, after the bell, I could hear the bell rung across the road. I would swallow two mouthfuls and get into class late. My teacher always allowed me to go down to the washroom and wind down, often throwing up the porridge, which hadn't really gone down anyway. You know, my teacher in the classroom made a wonderful difference in my life. At that school, I had a couple of teachers who really cared about me, and I did make some friends because, you know, it wasn't all of the children who were throwing the rocks. So each year, it was sort of interesting to see who I would have for my next year's teacher. Some of them were real bright lights. And one of the things I realized was that, you know, a teacher can really make a difference in the lives of children. If they have troubles at home, troubles somewhere in their lives, they can be safe. They can feel successful. They can be happy in the classroom. It certainly was a one of the major motivators
0: in my life to become a teacher. Your dad took you to school that day. And did he give you advice about how to deal with what no, was going on? No, no. Not at all.
1: I think our dad, in some ways, was crushed that this was happening to his children. He was a very loving father. I think he thought, or I know he believed that by moving over to the North Shore, uh, not living in the downtown core, where much of the Black neighborhood in Strathcona had a fairly high crime rate it was it was a rough neighborhood and and just as he had done when we lived in Winnipeg in Winnipeg we lived out in St. Boniface we did not live downtown our best friends the Durham's they lived right downtown and they lost kids to gunshots being run over to house fires so my dad was always looking for safety and he thought the North Shore being away from downtown no busy streets to you know Lonsdale at that time was the only main drag and that was half a mile away it was disheartening i think for him to realize that his children would not be welcomed at the school in winnipeg one night we had a house fire my dad was away and uh, we were renting a room to a lady named Betts, and she was a smoker and the house caught on fire when we went out into the street and whatever it was well after midnight our next door neighbors the ball family took us in and we slept there overnight in 1953, when we had this experience in North Vancouver, my dad, of course, as with the previous fire, was away from his family on the road, as he would say. And um, we were out in the streets. The approaching sirens were, were making great noise. And people sort of lifted the blinds and peered out into the street, and pulled wow. the blinds down. Nobody took a mother with four kids, a pregnant mother with four other kids into their home, we went in a cab to the Salvation Army Hall except on chairs. So North Vancouver was not St. Boniface. And although we were alienated from parts of St. Boniface because we didn't speak French, Perry had a friend across the street, you know, it wasn't a blatantly racist neighborhood that I was aware of. You know, North Vancouver was pretty hostile. Now, it wasn't Always that way. You know, in 1954, we moved further up the hill, and um, all but one of our neighbors spoke to us there. We just had one family across the street who wouldn't even look at us. But, you know, we made friends, and uh, not that we hadn't made friends at the other, but we did feel like we were part of our community. You know, racism certainly continued in our lives at, at an unbelievable rate sometimes when I think about it. But it was a step up from the first house, yeah.
0: What do you remember learning about Black history in school?
1: Well, Black people usually had a white person in a big pot over a fire. The women were always naked, you know, talkless anyway. We always had spears. And we were primitive. We were savage. Those are the words. Now, only place where we weren't in Africa, as shown in the social studies books, was in the music curriculum, which I just loathed. Most of those songs were written by a man named Stephen Foster. And they were all about happy darkies who were so happy to be on that old Kentucky home or on the plantation. And these songs, you know, I would sit in class, having to mouth it because, you know, I was hoping that I wasn't going to get an F for music. The hard part was my classmates looking at me and grinning and rolling their eyes. And the classrooms, you know, in many instances were toxic. To me, the music program was, and certainly many of my teachers over the years, when choices had to be made, used that same old eeny, meeny, miny, mo" catch a nigger by the toe. No, I'm telling you, we're not supposed to say it, but they said it all my life. I want to remind them of what they said. When I hear it, I have a physical reaction. Let me tell you, so do I. As for darky, as for blacky, as for all of these things, which we heard on a daily basis, you know, not all of our fellow students in every school were wild about us. What's really ironic, I've been putting together some material on Harry's high school year. Well, he was in junior high, grades seven to nine. He's in the yearbook, you know, each year once, and that's in the class photo. Uh, he did no sports there, and yet outside of school, he played on baseball teams, pitched no-hitter games. He was a great soccer player, but he didn't do any of those things at that junior high school that he went to from 1954, I guess, until um, 1958. I'll tell you something really funny. This is not funny. Just recently, my high school graduation class had their 60th reunion, and the organizer or whoever he's whatever it's called when you head up this reunion had been sending out notes to all of us via email to make sure we come make sure we come and the last one he sent me because I got so I deleted them after this was one of these remember the good old days well his good old days included and isn't it too bad we can't say eeny meeny miny moe anymore and he wants me to come to this high school reunion where he's lamenting the fact that he can't use that. I mean, you know, some people never moved on. And mm-hmm. I think in many ways, it's an age thing. Because young people today, I can't imagine most young people uttering the N-word. I mean, that's what they say. It's so abhorrent. But, you know, isn't it too bad we can't say any me, me, mo? And that's, to me... One of the sadnesses in my life is that people within my age group, for the most part, are still asking people, Where are you from? You're not part of Canadian culture. And uh, having been trying for 31 years now to get my manuscript published about a Black Canadian family that had three Olympians and who had experiences, you know, been shocking because what the Canadian literary industry has done, they have Produced lots of books written by black people, but they're about Polished hoe, lamenting for Trinidad, longing for Haiti, longing for this experience in West Africa. Never as a Canadian citizen. Mr. Cherry Andy's book, Brother, was at least about a black family, and that's within the last five years, about a black family who lived in Canada. Otherwise, in Canadian led, black people, right? But they're writing about the slave trade. They're writing about some culture where they are from to reinforce, and we're still looked upon as exotica. So to try and get a book published about a Black family of considerable renown, I mean, my brother held world records from 1960 until 74, but we're not ever portrayed to be part of Canada, especially in my province where It's called British Columbia. And once you've gotten rid of your European accent, if it's not English, you keep it if it's English, you're the main culture. And everybody else, I mean, I had a friend who sat in a restaurant and she asked our server where he was from. And he said, how's it? Which is the very close First Nations reserve, less than five miles away. But she thought because he was brown, he was from someplace else. Brown is the color of the continent. And the amount of time it's been a majority white, I think it's been minimal when you consider the millions of slaves and all of these indigenous peoples. It's been a brown continent, and yet somehow it isn't. And we're always seen as outsider. That's why I'm still being asked, where are you from?
0: And you felt like an outsider.
1: I did, and I found everything about myself. I still have to check myself. I mean, I'm thrilled seeing all these Black models. Since George Floyd died, our media out here in British Columbia, there's a Black person in every ad. Emery Barnes, who was our first Black male elected to the British Columbia legislature, his daughter became a model way back when. She was in Vogue magazine. Well, she certainly wasn't appearing in any advertising in the province of British Columbia, but in New York City, she could be accepted. I was greatly moved by that. I was greatly moved and shaped by Angela Davis letting her hair grow into a blackest beautiful afro because I and my sister would spend my time starting in the 60s we used these hot iron combs to straighten our hair And, and once I actually had my hair chemically straightened of course it all broke off and that was the end of that but you know that anything about us was not very attractive, not appealing, and that has mostly stayed with me for my life. As you say, you feel like an outsider in so many ways, and yet I was so engaged in my community, and as a teacher, and I still get hundreds of letters from grateful students who are now working in Cambodia, they're working in Hong Kong, they're working in Toronto, in Montreal, in Greece, in San Francisco, and of course all kinds of them send me birthday cakes still on my birthday kids, they saw you for who you were in the classroom. You know, I have a very good friend who's a dancer. I'm on the board of several dance companies here in Vancouver. This wonderful man comes to Vancouver a couple of times every few years because he's part of something called Kid Pivot. And he's a black man. He lives in Los Angeles. But he dances internationally, London, Netherlands, Israel, France, Sweden. He's amazing. So he came up here this year in March, or might have been the beginning of April, to rehearse for this new show we were putting on the road. And he said to me, Well, Valerie, you know, my usual Vancouver experience has already happened to me. He said, You know, I travel to all these cities around the world, but I can count on one thing about Vancouver. I will be called nigger somewhere on the streets. And here he was, it was the second or third day he was here, and he could report to me already that he had been called a nigger. And, you know. Canadians reject all that about themselves. They don't acknowledge it. One of my friends, White, obviously said, oh, well, I don't believe that's true, that it doesn't happen to him elsewhere. I said, he lives in Los Angeles. You know, um, he performs in Seattle. And I, I do think the British that's at the front of the name of this province has got something to do because people think if you are here and you're black, you're either an alien, you're an N, as you might like me to say, or you're despicable, You're you're an outsider. You know, I've had so many instances in my life, you know, people come to my door doing surveys and, oh, I want to speak to the lady of the house. I am the No, you're not. I want to speak to the woman who owns this house. Well, I own this house, you know. It's really hard on your psyche, isn't it? It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And what it is, I did a little program recently with some CBC people. Um, the director and the producer, both black people said, and one said, you know, it's like a thousand paper cuts a day. You know, they're not something you're going to lay charges over. They're not something that you're going to write about. It's just those paper cuts all day long, and it is exhausting.
0: You know, I was a school teacher, and part of why I went into teaching was because I didn't want children to have the same experience I did growing up in school. Can you tell us about your school career? After my first year,
1: I actually quit. The kids were lovely. There were 43 kids in this grade 5 class in 1964. And, um, the principal was awful for every time we were going to go on a field trip, he would come into my room and say, give me that little darkie over there. We've got to strap somebody so that we'll, your kids will behave on the field trip. So, you know, surrender, bring Raj ghoul Barbara Risby, you know, one of these kids, he wanted to really frighten the kids and the best kids to damage were the kids who were South Asian, black, whatever. They were not like him. They were alien as far as he was concerned. He once came into my room after school and he wrote the word nigger from the R at the end to the E to the two Gs in perfect, I mean, it read perfectly on the board. And he just wanted to show me what a good handwriter he was. But also here he was, you know, smacking me in the face with this word. So that was my first year. I, I loved my students. I adored my class, but I I was so demolished. My room was right across the hall from the principal's office, and he was in my room all the time, and I was just a nervous wreck. And you know, I've spoken since with other teachers from that stuff. oh, I didn't notice that. I said, why would you notice it? You were white. He didn't come into your classroom. He didn't write that word on your board, and there are countless stories, but I loved my career. Teachers do teaching
0: just by who they are all yeah. day long. I want to ask you about your time in sports and running. You were just 15 years old when you competed in the long jump at the high jump and the 60, the 100 and the 4x100 relay for Canada at the 1959 Pan Am Games in Chicago. And also as I mentioned earlier, you represented Canada at the Rome Olympics in 1960. What were your highlights of being at the Olympics?
1: You know, in nineteen fifty-nine when my brother and I went to the Canadian Championships to qualify for the Pan American Games, I didn't even know it was a meet to send us somewhere else. There was one other black person at that meet. And now when I look at the who's on the start line at the Canadian Championships, you know. So it was a very, very, very different sport. So in 1959, to be Canadian champion of 15 was absolutely shocking to me. It was it was news I could hardly stand. And it did make a difference in the lives particularly of my father, who was always called Boy or God knows what on the trains as a porter. He became Mr. Jerome. My younger brother, Barton, who was in a school for the mentally handicapped, was treated a little bit better. And I do think that Harry's and my profile at that time made some kind of difference. So we went to the Pan Ams. What was really great about that, my mother's siblings, two of them lived there. Army Howard's sisters were living there. So we had lots of people in the sands that we'd never met who were actually there cheering for us. So the next year, in 1960, you know, Harry set the world record, and off we went to the Olympics. Canada had not won a medal since 1928, and pressure was really on Harry. He was 19 years old at that Olympic Games. The big highlight, of course, was, you know, the Canadian team was so small, we didn't have our own dining room, so we could either eat with the Brits or the Americans, and why wouldn't I choose to eat with the Americans? I was... Besotted with the young American high jumper John Thomas and thrilled to many days that I was there sit at the same table as Cassius Clay, as he was known then. He was so funny and such a big mouth. Who would have known that he would go on to be this icon for all Black peoples around the planet? So that was pretty thrilling. He was very much besotted by Wilma Rudolph, who actually won the 100 and the 200 and the relay in that Olympics. She was just 20 years old. Cassius Clay would come and hang around the track and field people because there was the lovely Wilma Rudolph. He was very entertaining. It was a thrill. And my brother Harry did, uh, when they were in the same town as each other, they usually got in touch. And, and so Harry had
0: some type of ongoing relationship with him. You said Harry might make the front page of the Vancouver Sun for setting a world record at Empire Stadium, but he still couldn't rent an apartment. Can you say more about that?
1: yeah so in nineteen sixty two Harry married Wendy Foster, a white woman from Edmonton, but who had been going to University of Oregon. He and Wendy look and look for apartments, and in all of these apartments, the sign was still up the day after they'd been there, you know vacancy vacancy, vacancy vacancy and finally, our friend Sheila Thompson, my second foster mother, went out and rented it in her name it was she and Wendy. Harry's wife, did go and rent this apartment. But, you know, it was just ironic. Not ironic. It was obscene. You know, it was all right for him to entertain them by running down the track and raising Canada's profile. But by God, don't live in our building, you know. And again, not only was it because he was black, but this was an interracial couple. That's what I love about the world today. I walk down the streets. and My God, they're not looking at the color. They're looking into the heart of the person. I love it. And I smile at a lot of couples on the street. It's very
0: uplifting. In 1995, you went to Ridgeway Elementary School, the same school that you talked about being stoned at. Well, it was my first Black History Month talk.
1: I remember taking the class to the window. I said, you know, come and look out the window. Do you see that big house over there? That's where we were. And we didn't even get onto the grounds. I have to tell you, just recently, I was back there the CBC crew and I also went to the house and uh, you know it's amazing disturbance that however mild erupts in your stomach when you revisit these moments i want to tell you about another moment that i revisited with horror because i had so shut it down in my mind i was so ashamed of being black i married in 1964 in july And in August, my husband and I went to the Banff Springs Hotel where we had made a reservation six weeks before. And Ron went in, was signing us in, and I came trailing in, and the clerk looked at me and he said, I need to see the manager. The manager came out and said, You know, we're overbooked. We're really sorry. We can make a reservation for you at one of our other little hotels, dumpy little yellow motel down the highway. And you know, when that happened, I was so ashamed that I was ruining this man's life because his mother had been deeply unhappy at this interracial marriage. And oh, my God, think of the children. In the end, she ended up loving that child as much as anyone ever could. And Ron and I didn't even talk about it. We got in the car and we drove down the highway. And then we spilled up our week with hikes and sightseeing and whatever. The shame was just awful. And so in 2015, I went with this wonderful dance company that I'm with. Our tour manager, Brent, said, oh, let's go over to the Vance Springs Hotel and have a drink, and I, oh, sure, that's great. Well, I walked in the door, and the smell of the oak and the leather, and I thought, oh, my God, I've been here before, and my stomach was just heaving. Just suddenly remembered standing at that counter over there. I was frozen. And the shame was there too, you know, that I, this person was really going to ruin the life of this because we did not have a strong, well, my brother always had a strong sense of self-worth. I guess my older sister did too, but I, um, I found it kind of hard for much of my life to believe in me. And that's what I loved about children and about teaching, you know, it was sort of a refuge actually. That memory became so vivid and it was just so washed over me it was shocking it was like standing on 8th street again you know looking at school that you could almost feel those rocks hitting in you and as we turned and just got to the other side of the gate you know this thud in your back so you know we can fill our lives with joy and happiness and good friends but
0: some things are
1: they're really in there
0: you had suggested that I listen to the speech that you did on YouTube from the Historical Society. And all I could think about was, how did she survive all of that with the sense of self? Where do you get your strength from? It's called an illusion.
1: When my son finally decided he didn't need to live with mother anymore, and he was going to be so independent, you know, the first thing he said to me in this was, you live with too much fear. People can read you any way they want. They would like need to seem self-composed and together they have no idea you know when I meet new people I don't know how they're going to respond I don't know where they're going to be the family that says we'll get my kid out of that class you know I have no idea paper cuts maybe heal but I'll tell you the inside ones you know they don't always heal What do you know about the Black community from Salt Spring Island? Well, I did know quite a bit about them for a while because these people came to Victoria, first of all, in 1858 on the Commodore. They came because the Fugitive Slave Law had been enacted in the United States, and that meant any Black anywhere in the United States could be picked up and taken south and returned, not even to their own land. You could just claim them. So a lot of very capable, wonderful people came to Victoria and I think it was more than 100 of the people on a boat, maybe 200, arrived in Victoria, but they weren't well treated. So some of those families, the Stark family, the names are on some of the roads on, on Salt Spring Island. So there were about five or six families that did go, and Mrs. Stark became a school teacher over there. Most of the people in Victoria left. The Alexander family actually stayed, and uh, one of their descendants actually was the Principal at b c i t uh for many years a wonderful man with a good sense of history of of his people coming up, so most of them didn't stay. I think the people on salt Spring Island were half a dozen families and and were relatively happy. It's a very rural spot, but the Victoria contingent, you know, as soon as slavery was ended, which it wasn't really because it just took another form in the United States, most of those families went back. They found not only was it not as free as they thought it was going to be, but it was also a little bit colder. Yeah, I think one of the really remarkable stories in Canadian history of Black families, not just those who fought for the uh, British in the uh, War of Independence in 1776, but a man named Ware in uh, Alberta, I think is, I, I love that story. You know, he had been a slave, he came north, he built up this Huge cattle herd and built a beautiful home. And, uh, you know, there are many good
0: stories which we need to share. As we finish up here, what is it you'd like people to know about being Black in Canada, about what Canada needs to do?
1: Well, for me, I see Canadians, and some of my white friends say it openly Canadians see themselves as wonderful liberal democracy where they are good to people. We've taken in refugees. And we don't have racism here. And I guess that's one of the major motivators for me to write my book is that, you know, like, hello, wake up, smell the coffee. I think my biggest hope is young people. They don't see color all the time. They see a person that either is attractive to them. And nowadays, because there are black people in ads and on television and in movies, people can see the beauty of black people
0: this has been such a treat sitting down with you today
1: valerie i wish i could get to meet you in person i think zoom is wonderful because we might not have otherwise even met maybe one of these days our paths will cross it would be great
0: thank you so much thanks for tuning in be sure to check out our website www.intheblackcanada.ca to listen to black canadians from across this country Talk about their experiences and those of their ancestors of being Black in Canada. And if you have a story to tell, contact us through the website or at in the Black Canada at gmail.com. You can catch more episodes of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, wherever you get your podcasts.